Welcome to Kitchen Table Conversations, a series of short and shareable conversation starters for those of us who have or love and support people with a complicated and beautiful brain. Here's your host, Angela Geddes. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Kitchen Table Conversations. Very excited to be here again and so happy that you've decided to tune in. Please feel free to reach out to me at any time if there's a particular topic or a question that you have that you would like me to explore a little bit because I know that there's lots of really important kitchen table conversations and sometimes I have to be honest it's difficult for me to pick which one uh, to focus on but because we're still in the month of September today's session is going to focus again on the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure and the role that we all have in terms of supporting healthy pregnancies and sharing what we continue to learn and doing our best to make sure that we kind of debunk some of the myths that are out there and clarify the the information so that people have the right to make um, or have the ability, pardon me, to make informed decisions. So I want to start this podcast by indicating that there there are still a lot of uh, practitioners, you know, that's doctors and psychologists and social workers Um, occupational therapists, whoever. Um, There's a lot of people who still don't really understand the implications of prenatal alcohol exposure. And I think if you've been tuning in over the the last year, you will know that this is a little bit surprising to me, uh, particularly when you go back a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the awareness of alcohol uh, and the impacts on pregnancy going back to biblical times. You know, we just, we have known that alcohol and the developing fetus is not a good combination. However, uh, just this week, I had a, a family come in to my, to my office, which I think it's important to note that they traveled two hours to get to me um, because there are so few clinicians who, who understand um, the effects of alcohol and the implications of FASD on the day-to-day, you know, s- tips and strategies for caregivers to to help lighten the load a little bit. There are very few of us. So, I mean, that's, that's why I've developed the social work training and that's on my website. So I encourage you to check that out if you'd like and share it with anybody else that, uh, that you think might, might, be, might be interested in it and might find it helpful. But the point that I want to make is that this family that drove two hours to come and see me is just in the final stages of a complete complex neurodevelopmental disorder assessment. And so they know that there's been exposures, um, alcohol and some illicit uh, drugs and substances that uh, definitely have impacted the growing baby. Um, so, but the psychologist is not prepared to make an FASD diagnosis because in her view, and this is what she told the family, that if it was alcohol, everybody born in the 70s would have FASD. So this is like astounding to me. And at what point, I guess, do we hold practitioners accountable for the information that they're sharing that is incorrect. So I I work with a number of people who have um, lived experience either as a caregiver or adults with FASD who have been diagnosed sometimes early on, uh, but most of the time much later, um, sometimes in their 50s, sometimes in their 30s, sometimes in their 40s. Um, and But this, this means that they've spent a lot of time 
not knowing what's really going on and blaming themselves for things that were outside of their control and were not supported in helpful and relevant ways. And so I had one mother um, who was told throughout her pregnancy that, yes, a glass of wine with your dinner on a daily basis, that's just fine. Well, this mother um, learned the very hard way that this was not fine and that her little one was struggling quite significantly because of her daily alcohol consumption that was approved and endorsed by her obstetrician. This woman said to me, I am seriously contemplating a lawsuit. I've worked with another person with, uh, with lived experience who has FASD, who also maintains that for physicians or clinicians who are making in, or sharing inaccurate information, why are they not, uh, why are their complaints not being Um, processed against them to help them? Why is there not accountability? And why is there not strong encouragement for clinicians to be trained so that they can be more aware and be more inclusive and better positioned to identify when um, the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure or complex trauma or illicit substances may have interfered with the development. Um, So this is, this is really, really puzzling to me. And, and I really do feel like, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine to understand that we only know what we know, but why are we not prioritizing this as a a system and within our post-secondary education for service providers that are going to end up supporting people with complicated and beautiful brains that result from prenatal alcohol exposure. So this remains very puzzling for for me, and I will continue to be knocking on doors and continue to be uh, providing education at various community colleges. And I'm very happy and very proud to say that my book has become a required read for some uh, college programs. In fact, I will be heading over to the Child and Youth Worker Program at a community college here very shortly to to discuss with them the importance of our um, position as helpers and as child and youth care professionals in, in, um, in schools or in treatment facilities or within children's mental health. So this is going to be really, really helpful. And I have to tell you that I am often really surprised, but pleasantly so, that people feel safe and comfortable enough, even within my presentations, to acknowledge that Uh, One, maybe they were unaware of a pregnancy, so consumed alcohol and are now seeing um, some signs and symptoms that might be related for their own children. And number two um, is the acknowledgement that their um, that alcohol was a part of their developmental history, and that maybe some of the struggles and some of the diagnoses, such as ADHD, autism spectrum disorder. anxiety, learning disabilities, or maybe even milder learning challenges in particular areas, but difficulty with concentration, difficulty with planning and organizing, maybe some mood stuff going on. Um, Maybe there's been some coordination difficulties or very, um, you know, some sensitivities to sounds. Speaking of sounds, there's a truck outside of my office window that's apparently trying to go backwards and um, I hope that that beeping isn't too irritating in this uh, in this podcast but I don't want to stop what I'm doing right now so 
Oh, there it goes. It stopped. So um, back on track here, I am again very passionate about the need for service providers to be more aware so that families can go to agencies and look for support and receive fewer wrong doors. So I'm not saying that everybody needs to be an absolute expert. I know that this takes time and it is complicated um, and it looks like many things. So I understand why FASD and the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure can be missed or misunderstood, but we can do better. And when we know better, we will do better. So I'm very, very optimistic. And, uh, and again, just so appreciate that, uh, that you're listening in and that I do ask that you share this amongst uh, your families and bring this conversation back. So if you are a service provider, or if you are uh, somebody who can share this information, I will post this on my website, but I have developed some considerations. They're also found in my book, but I've updated them a little bit for social workers specifically and for child and youth workers specifically, but this one is a general one for consideration for service providers, keeping in mind the role of stigma and FASD. So I ask that people please reconsider our biases regarding parenting problems and how we define good parents versus, um, quote, bad parents and what successful families and children and youth and adults actually look like. What does that mean and how can we redefine that? Um, interesting. I was on the golf course yesterday and I heard the term helicopter parenting and it was used in such a derogatory tone, um, with the assumption that we were coddling these children and they were never going to be able to remember the dates of their hockey games or remember their school schedule if we are constantly doing everything for them. But I encourage people to reconsider helicopter parenting um, and recognize that there is a heightened and a legitimate need to protect and to advocate and to support kids with complicated and beautiful brains. And that means that sometimes executive functioning is not available to them. And that doesn't mean that we can't practice and develop new strategies and tips and skills um, to build on, of course. But um, there's often this derogatory tone that's associated with helicopter parenting. And I just ask people to reconsider that because sometimes our parents really do need to be advocates and, and more than they really want to be. So let's keep that in mind too. Parents have other things to do um, than to remember their hockey games for their kids or to do extra around homework and that kind of thing. It's not because they don't want their kids to do it, right? So um, we also need to focus on protecting some of our most vulnerable, all the while focusing on dignity. So you know, somebody who's gone through life with uh, school supports and parents who are, are helping with homework and, and allowing their kids to be successful um, by shifting environments and that kind of thing, then all of a sudden they become 18 and they feel like they're an adult. Well, we have to remember they are an adult, but sometimes there's a dismaturity or there's a vulnerability that needs to be supported, but yet they still have to have a voice and have some um, element of control or autonomy um, and value, right? So we have to really be careful of that. I think it's important to think about how we would demonstrate love and support for our grandparents with memory issues or cognitive decline for a moment. And I'm just not sure that we use that same kind of compassion with our young people um, with legitimate inconsistent memory or organizational challenges. And with the right supports and messaging, FASD can be prevented. So let's really think about that. I don't like to say that it's 100% preventable. 
I mean, I would love to say that, but I'm not sure that that's fair because we do have situations where we struggle with addictions, where it's actually very dangerous to stop drinking immediately without some physical risk of physical harm um, and maybe even death. So there's those considerations. Um, and then, you know, the, the risk of unplanned pregnancy is really high in our society. It's over 50 to 60 percent of unplanned pregnancies. So where there's alcohol, there is risk of that. So the suggestion always is if there's a chance that you could become pregnant, which means unprotected sex, essentially, um, then there shouldn't be alcohol involved. So, um, yeah, and when supports are in place and outcomes have improved, we suggest to service providers, please don't take the supports away, assuming that our job is done. Let's shift and reduce the intensity of supports potentially, all the while looking at, uh, you know, growth and, and interdependence, but keep the scaffolding in place. Otherwise, sometimes we just set people up for failure. And that feels terrible when we when we know we have learned and done better. And then all of a sudden, we're backwards again. So those are things that are really important for us as service providers to consider. And FASD is indiscriminate. So this is the biggest thing, you know, like that psychologist saying, you know, everybody in the 70s would have FASD if it was, you know, a real thing. Um, And I've heard that from my friends as well. And it can't be that bad. All of our parents drank and and we're fine. And I often, I always say, well, define fine. You know, there are a lot of people who struggle with anxiety and depression and, um, you know, some minor speech, you know, maybe some stuttering or some anxiety related uh, tics or, you know, things like that, that some idiosyncrasies that, that we're, you know, we just chalk up as normal, which, Maybe they are, but they could very well be related to prenatal alcohol exposure. So sometimes we're, you know, binge eating. Sometimes we're, um, we have impulsivity, impulse control issues. And, you know, I talk to people all the time that make really impulsive decisions. They get into money management difficulties, that kind of thing. Well, maybe that is related to their um, prenatal alcohol exposure, but they've also been raised in a very structured environment with an intact family without any of the other risks associated. So there was always really good nutrition, good medical care, uh, you know, strong families that are, are that stay together. And so we don't have that trauma around divorce or separation. So outcomes can be better. So You know, what we think FASD is and what it really is, is quite different. Um, There are a lot of people who have FASD in the world. In Canada alone, there's over a million and a half. And we don't have near that diagnosed. I think it's less than 1% actually who are who are actually diagnosed with the condition. So there's a lot of people out there that are doing okay with FASD with the right supports. So it's in all of our circles, professional and personal. So keep that in mind. And this is a human rights issue. All persons with all types of disabilities must enjoy all human rights and fundamental freedoms. So that means we do have to make accommodations to make sure that that people with FASD are not thrown in jail and that there's other supports um, that are more customized and relevant and helpful within our communities. Far too many people are left homeless and without a job and uh, are really, really struggling because we assume that they are capable of more than what they're capable of. And our system is currently quite exclusionary. And people do have the right to make informed decisions. So we do have, as I mentioned earlier, the responsibility to offer evidence-informed information. 
And finally, as I say all the time, please help spread the word. It's up to all of us to support healthy pregnancy. So once again, I encourage you to bring this home to your kitchen table conversations. With many thanks, Angela. Angela.